This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello and welcome to the red box politics podcast i'm matt chorley at the end of our first week of doing our show on it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Times Radio. So today we've got two best bits from the show. Later, I speak to director and writer and all-round comedy genius Richard Curtis about pensions Honestly, it's more interesting than it sounds. He also talks about growing artichokes and why he loves pantos. But first, uh, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, about coronavirus over recent weeks. But one of the positives to come out of coronavirus has been the help that's been given to rough sleepers who've been taken off the streets and given space in hotels. It's a big question mark about what happens uh, to them next. But on today's show, we spoke to Mike Matthews, a hotelier in Shrewsbury, about how he's opened his hotel up to rough sleepers from his town, and it was just an extraordinary bit of radio. Uh, let me bring in Mike Matthews. He joins us from Shrewsbury, where he runs the Prince Rupert Hotel, which has been housing um, some of the, the rough sleepers yeah, who've been helped by this scheme. Brilliant job. Morning, Mike. Good morning. Morning to you all. So, just talk us through how how this came about for you, and what's it been like? Uh, we had to close the hotel following government guidance, obviously, and but I didn't want to close the hotel. You know, I, I enjoy being a hotelier. Um, and much as the thought of sitting in my back garden for three months was attractive, um, it would have been highly complex to close this business. 
I had a phone call from the council, from Shropshire Council. Uh, we had a meeting that afternoon, and the, the, the project, if you like, uh, appealed to me as, as an individual and, and my team. And so we consequently took in uh, 25 rough sleepers. They're, they were the known uh, people within Shrewsbury who had been homeless and living on the streets for, for some four, nearly four decades. Um, and, um, and we're now up to 32. Um, as you just, just had just been discussing, there seems to be an increasing number by the day. Um, and we're into our 16th week now, and we're, and we're still going strong. And how long do you envisage this lasting for? Because presumably at some point you want to open up as a hotel again. But equally, you want yeah. to make sure the people you've been looking after the last few weeks aren't, aren't, don't end up back where they started. Absolutely. It's, um, it's a big question and a good question. Uh, 4th of July is the date the government's given for hotels to reopen. Um, if, if I were to say to my residents now or last week when the announcement was made, as of the 3rd of July, uh, you'll be leaving here, uh, I think it would be a catastrophic decision for them. And, and, and during the last four months, we've, as a team at the hotel, we've created an affinity, a family unit, a bond uh, with, with the individual staying here. I've seen the progress they've made. I've seen the efforts that they've all made individually and as a group. Uh, I think it'd be quite brutal to um, to just close the door. Uh, and if, if there was a suitable option out there, which I felt that they could go from here to that option, then I may feel differently about it. But um, as far as I understand, there is no current option there. So what is the alternative? They would simply uh, end up on the streets again. And, and, I, and I think that would remove their confidence, their trust, uh, and their ability to reform into the community and into society. I think, don't think you'd get them back from that. I think that would be the end for, for many of these, these individuals. Has it changed your attitudes to people who were rough sleeping, uh, getting to know them, having them around the place? Oh, totally. My word, gracious. <laughs> you know, when, when I saw them walk through the door um, on, on the first day, I remember the first person that walked in here, walked to his room. He'd been living in a doorway 200 yards away from the hotel for the best part of 20 years. And he burst into tears uh, and, and our staff burst into tears. So, you know, you, you create that emotional bond from the minute um, the, the, the individuals arrive. But to see them walk to the door looking extremely uh, disheveled and um, undernourished um, and then to see the difference now, then sure, absolutely, it creates a... Uh, I, I just feel satisfied. You know, I feel very humbled. Um, I feel as though uh, I'm, I'm extremely embarrassed about the fact that I hadn't done enough beforehand. Uh, I've become a trustee of the Shrewsbury Ark now, the charity, because I want to continue this work and, and, and to, to, to try and form a relationship with these individuals now within the town. And I want to get involved right, to, to how, how do you stop this from happening? You know, the, the individuals slip through a net but what I've learned over the last four months is that when you start your life off, sometimes with no mother or father, and tossed around from one orphanage to another and one care home to another, and you find this community in the streets, uh, which becomes your family, then you understand this is why some, for some they have no, no moral compass. Uh, and that's what I've been trying to do for four months. I've been trying to restructure their thoughts, get them well fed. Uh, put in the structure and the routine and the discipline that they've never had, never had to proceed with some of these individuals. And to see the improvements now, for sure, um, it's changed me because a relationship, a relationship has been formed and, uh, and, and a large amount of trust has been formed, which is quite mutual.
And don't get me wrong, we have our ups and downs. You know, I was up between three or four in the morning last night sorting out a situation. But uh, and, and sometimes you have to draw a line in the sand. This is all about a, a, a family, isn't it? There are times when you have to bring your children to, to a point where you say, look, this isn't going to happen again. And uh, we haven't been afraid to do that. And I think that has helped. That has helped create that bond. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. Now, here on Times Radio, we don't think that politicians have got all of the answers. So occasionally we're going to ask people from outside politics what they would do if they were in charge in our feature, If I Ruled the World. And today we're putting in charge... Well, man, he's done just about everything. Writer, director, producer and campaigner. Richard Curtis uh, joins us here on Time of Radio. Hello, Richard. I'm disappointed not to be described as a vegetable gardener today. <laughs> as that's where I'm putting most of my work. Really? What are you growing? What's, your, what's, in, the, what's in the Curtis vegetable patch? Well, the big shock is the artichokes. In that's, a good way? I, I had no idea what they were. Well, the thing is, they're, they're you know, tiresome to cook, but they're very impressive to grow. Um, and I'm also bad on raspberries because I just eat them as I walk around. So I never bring anything back to the kitchen. You never have a full bowl. That's the problem. That's the problem. Never I never have a full bowl. Exactly. I, all, I, all I can say, my lettuces have gone mad, but that's, that's, that pales into its significance to your artichokes. So uh, let's talk about, we're going to put you in charge. What is the, what's, the, what's the big law that you'd like to ch- see changed? Well, the big thing I'm interested in at the moment <clears throat> is this issue of pensions. Uh, and, you know, what <clears throat> we, the public, uh, do with them. So we just started this campaign called Make My Money Matter or, you know, have a pension you can be proud of. Because I've spent my whole life trying to work out how you can get money into the best things in the world. And it turns out that, you know, I've been sitting on a pension. I had no idea what it was invested in. And I think that, you know, there's a 3.1 trillion pension pot in the UK, which could be supporting, you know, the best businesses doing the best things with the best standards, you know, aiming for net carbon zero and never using child labor and being full of, you know, initiative to try and make the world a better and safer place. Uh, And I think that the government is really thinking about this, but the big thing that they need is to just ask pension companies to give people more opportunity and more transparency and more ease to open up accounts which will actually be in accordance with things they believe in. And that's things like, you know, some people might not know that their pension savings are invested in uh, big polluting companies or tobacco companies and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, the breakthrough moment here, I saw a very moving TED talk by a woman called Bronwyn King, who's an oncologist. She said she'd spent a whole life trying to save lives from cancer, had a meeting with her financial advisor and found out that three of the top companies she was investing in were tobacco companies. So she worked out she'd probably killed more people than she'd saved during the course of her life. Um, So I just think that, you know, when I started to look into this issue, we found out that everybody was trying to move in the same direction, but everybody was slightly using the excuse of there's not much public demand and it's our duty, fiduciary duty with pension pots to give people as much money in return as they possibly can. Uh, And also the law makes it a bit tricky. So the idea is to really wham open this door because now apparently pensions that are ethical and sustainable have been performing better 
actually than other ones. So it's not a choice of, oh, I lose money, um, but at least I'm doing the right thing. Actually, there's no clash between value and value. So we're just really looking for the government to say to pensions, take into account what world the businesses you're supporting are leading to, because there's no point getting a bit of extra money in your pension if the whole world's on fire in 20 years. I suppose a lot of a lot of let's be honest a lot of the time pensions aren't all that sexy it's aside from maybe a, uh, if somebody owns a house it's probably the biggest amount of money that anyone has and yet it's yeah. it goes out of your pay packet it disappears you sort of forget all about it you've got other stuff going on and you don't really think about it even though it's far more than probably what you have in your your current account that's exactly right and you know it could be going into developing vaccines and building schools and building wind farms and affordable housing and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, what I'm really asking for is that people just ask that question. You know, they actually ask their firm, what's our pension doing? Because there are options where you can say, well, I want things that are consistent with net carbon zero, that are consistent with my values, that are investing in the most exciting businesses. It's really just loosening up the information and meaning that, you know, someone said it's 27 times more powerful in terms of the planet to have an ethical pension than to stop flying and stop eating meat, you know? So you could be doing a good deed every day without doing any work as long as you start in the right position. And obviously you've launched this uh, initiative. It's got loads of uh, major names. Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England, uh, Helen Dean, CEO of Nest. Um, uh, It's a big pension provider. But you're launching it with a particular eye on the COP26 um, climate change talks, which are obviously happening in Glasgow, they postponed because of coronavirus. How how confident are you about getting a breakthrough on this? I'm pretty confident. Obviously, if I were prime minister, I would try to accelerate my confidence <laughs> um, by legal means. But I do think that when people get this idea, because I think, I mean, I don't know if you're feeling this, but I'm feeling that my generation started sort of thinking that to change the world, you gave money to charity. And then, you know, on things like the Make Poverty History campaign, you try and push governments to spend more of their money in the right way. And now I think people want to do things in their own lives. So I just noticed my kids worrying about, you know, what they eat and whether they fly and the clothes they wear and supply chains and all that kind of stuff. And this is just meant to be another part of that consumer revolution. And I don't think it can go backwards. I think once people start asking that question you know, is this great big pot of money that we've got being spent doing exciting things, then I think that it's something that will move forward. It's just a question of at what speed. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about, I mean, you talked about, most of what you talked about there is all things you've done in your career, whether it was comic relief and then, you know, make poverty history. Why so hugely successful, you know, with you know, I personally absolutely loved Blackadder and then obviously all the films, Love Actually and Notting Hill and whatever else. Why do you do all of this other stuff? You could be you could be bronzed on a jet ski ah. in your huge mansion in L.A. And yet you're uh, you're such a, a, a you keep on campaigning. Uh, do you know, it's because it turned out to work so well. I, mean, I remember the first Red Nose Day, we thought we'd make five million and we made 15 million. And the second one, we made 27 million. So you know, my experience has taught me that if you do, you know, say to people, here's an opportunity to do the right thing, most people want to do it. So I've just found myself in this position because of my comedy and, you know, the things I've done to actually just endlessly benefit from the generosity of the public. And it's a 
sort of addictive thing, but I, I can't see how I could step away. And if we're putting you in charge of the country, what, what's been your experience in interacting with, because in a lot of these cases, you have interacted with world leaders from all over the world. What's been your experience of, you know, coming from a world of entertainment and rubbing up against politicians? Do you like politicians? Do you have sympathy for them? Do they all wind you up? Well, I think one of the key things with me is trying not to appear to be more intelligent than I am. I mean, if I ruled the world, the first thing I'd do is change the constitution so people like me couldn't rule the world. I think that'd be very important. (laughs) But I do think that one of the things with politicians is trying to, you know, communicate what they're doing in a way, you know, more attractively. So on the sustainable development goals, which is the big thing I've been working on with the UN, you know, we help try and give them good graphics and make them more passionate and make films about them. So I think one of the things that I would do, I'd ask to be in charge of comms, you know, and actually try and create opportunities for change. That's the thing about the COP, you know, it gives you a deadline. That's the thing about the global goals. They actually end in 2030. And can we have done all the decisive things by then? You know, so I would try and set exciting deadlines and communicate well with people. And then my experience is that people will go along with you and make changes. Do you worry about with the where the world is right now? You know, deadlines get set, goals get written, and they don't always get met. Do you think, do you worry about the, the sort of the way the world is? Well, look, any, anyone would be worried by the tragedy of COVID. But I, I think that... I think there is a moment for what they're calling a sort of reset, you know, build back better. I do think it may have been the decisive moment. I mean, the moment that you see coronavirus spread through New York, bad things really can happen. And the reality that, you know, major cities may be flooded if we don't control climate change suddenly becomes a reality rather than a sort of frightening story. So I do think this might be an opportunity for people to actually pay attention to bigger ambitions, more international ambitions. And I mean, things like this campaign, will you suddenly see, well, I've got another lever for power to try to change things. And I think it will add urgency to the climate debate. And, you know, the Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movements, there's an appetite for change. And I think that that may accelerate. In a way, we've lost a year, but the hope is that you come out with sort of new passion and determination to fix big things. Yeah, all those things it's, uh, you know, when people say, oh, it's a nice idea, but not, you know, now is not the time or you can't realistically do that. It was in the constraints, you know, like the big reset button has been pushed. And frankly, if, if yeah, not I mean, look how much we've now. managed to change things in the UK. I mean, remarkable communal things occurred. And so, you know, I'm hoping every single person who listens to your programme just goes into work or Zooms into work tomorrow. And says, just tell me a bit about our pension. Is it a good one? Is it a default one? Are we actually doing great things with it? Because there are great companies like Nest who actually, if their their basic pension is one that's trying to do the right thing with regard to gender and diversity and planet and supply chains and all that stuff. Okay, so we're putting you in, we're putting you in charge. Uh, are you going to be a dictator? Do you have a cabinet around you? Who's going to be in your team? You can have anyone, living living or dead, politician or otherwise. Oh my God. Um, do you need a Black that, Adder character that's going to do all the, you know, the the the, the dirty work away from prying eyes? <laughs> uh, no, I would definitely have a minister in charge of the um, Sustainable Development Goals. That'd be a very very, very important thing to do because, um, you know, the more that we pay attention to those, the better. As far as I'm concerned, um, I've never read a political biography in my life. 
Um, there's a guy called Thomas Clarkson, who actually was the key figure in abolishing slavery. I think that I'd put him in charge of things. Stormzy would have an enormously important position. Uh, and uh, my daughter, Scarlett Curtis, would replace me um, at the turn of the year. <laughs> very good, very good. Now, well, I was going to say, because all political um, careers end in failure, of course, famously, what would be your uh, vice? What, what would be the thing that inevitably forced you out of office? Why would you, what, inability, what, what? Inability, inability to remember facts. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's I not a cause. Know. I think we know from, from recent history, <laughs> that's not necessarily cause of resignation. No, but, well, actually, yes, maybe I'd be celebrated for the fact that I never knew the facts in the first place rather than that I lied about them. I mean, I think that would be it. And also, um, bad hair would have to come into it. My girlfriend recently practised hair cutting on our dog and then took me as her second client. So I think I'd have to wear a bag over my head. <laughs> I suppose to ask, have you, have you ever actually considered becoming an MP? Has anyone ever approached you and asked you to run for Parliament? No, no, I haven't done that. That, that wouldn't be my skill set. I mean, I think it's such a brilliant and important representative job, but I think I probably... And more useful in trying to, you know, take the best dreams of people and try and, you know, make them clearer. So, you know, we've just produced for this Make My Money Matter campaign a little animation starring Martin Freeman where he's playing a naked woolly man. You know, I think I'm probably better at doing that sort of thing than I am at working out, as it were, the legislative details to try and accelerate this progress. <laughs> and, and just what is happening with the day job? Because obviously, you know, filmmaking, TV filmmaking is all being put on hold. Were you working on something in the middle of lockdown? Uh, well, no, I mean, I was one of those people in lucky timing. I'm actually working on an animation, which I can't say anything about. So I have had some writing to do. But we did the big night in that fundraiser and we did Red Nose Day America. So, you know, the other day job I do, the... Yeah the more appeals-based one has got the better of me. And cinemas due to open or free to open at the end of this week. Are you going to rush back to the cinema? There are some great cinemas here in Suffolk where I am. Um, I don't know about that. I mean, I do think it's probably going to be a slow process, but my instinct is that the moment that people start seeing fans back at football matches, they'll suddenly feel confident again about going to cinemas. So I certainly hope that that'll happen. I'm really hoping that theatres get back in time for the pantomime and that that's another thing I'd do if I ruled the world. I would have a really good package for theatres. I think the government's being quite sort of slow about that. And it is a huge industry. You know, I think it produces more than 10 billion for the UK economy. And it's easy to say, well, it's just theatres, but it's actually, you know, 300,000 jobs, huge amounts of tourism. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to go to the cinema and the pantomime come Christmas. I, I'm a huge, I totally agree. I'm a huge uh, panto fan, and one of my best mates is, is a dame every year, and it's you know it's in the diary. So, yeah, we hope that it comes back. Richard Curtis, lovely to speak to you. Uh, launched the Make My Money Matter campaign to um, encourage. Yeah, you go to- online and check out the website. There's some good. There's some good stuff there, and if you can ask. I think you'll feel very satisfied if you can get a pension you can be proud of. Fantastic. I'm going to have to get you back on to talk about your secret animation project. So, Richard Curtis, thanks very much. To make sure you don't miss future episodes of the podcast, subscribe on Apple, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And to read more about what we've been talking about on the podcast, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesradio to subscribe. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.